Welcome to the Beyond the Box Store podcast. This is your host, David Kaplan. In this episode, I interview Coach David Muchnick. He's currently an assistant men's basketball coach at NYU. Coach, how's it going? Good, David. How are you? I'm doing well. You mind giving yourself a uh, brief introduction to the listeners? Sure. Uh, David Muchnick. Uh, I just uh, about to start my second year as an assistant coach at NYU in New York City. Uh, it'll be my 16th year in college coaching all at the Division Three level, uh, six different institutions that I've been a part of. Uh, started out at uh, Cortland, upstate New York, uh, SUNY school up there for three years. Got my master's up there as well. Uh, was at Denison University outside of Columbus, Ohio for two years after that. Uh, went to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy for four years, uh, which is the fifth lesser-known federal service academy in the country, similar to West Point, Annapolis, uh, Air Force, and and Coast Guard. Um, was there for four years. In the middle of my fourth year, uh, was the uh, interim head coach, and uh, we did uh, well uh, towards the end of the year. And um, at the time, I was uh, looking to stay as a head coach and. Uh, Maine Maritime Academy, a state maritime institution up in New England, offered me their head job uh, before Merchant Marine was able to because of federal government hiring procedures. So I went up there for three years, uh, was a head coach up there and uh, had some some personal reasons. I had some health issues, uh, some cancer. Thankfully, everything's good now. Uh, but I left uh, and resigned in, in uh, April of 2017 up in Maine, uh, came back to New York, got myself healthy, uh, felt good again. Uh, came on to uh, the staff with uh, Ryan Highlands, who I know you know very well, at John Jay for two years on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and uh, just finished my first year at NYU. So uh, long, long, strange trip for sure, but uh, all good experiences, uh, different places, different institutions, uh, all with great student athletes and great staffs and athletic departments, and just uh, continue to be fortunate to be a part of this great profession. That's great, Coach, and I'm glad to hear you're you're healthy. I knew that, uh, you know, it wasn't ideal, but you had to do what you had to do, obviously. No, thank you. Yeah, it was it, obviously when you leave, when you leave a, a place that you're building up for three years and I took over a program that was maybe the worst division three program in the country when I took over there and uh, we had gotten it back to a, a really strong level of, of at least competitiveness. The wins hadn't come yet, um, but we were, we were close and we had a good recruiting class that was supposed to come in that, unfortunately kind of fell by the wayside when I left uh, when I did. Um, but at the same time, there, there, you know, there's a, there's not to get too deep in, in, in uh, everything, but um, you know, I think there's a, a higher power and sometimes you can't argue with that. And, and certain things happen for, for different reasons. And, and for me, it was, uh, it was great to get back to New York uh, even if it wasn't necessarily on my own terms uh, at, at first, but I couldn't be more fortunate to be back in, in New York, uh, very close to where I grew up. And um, the last three years at John Jay and now NYU, I, I've uh, I've been around great people. So can't argue with that. Absolutely. Now, Coach, talk about growing up in Oceanside, New York. Yeah, so uh, very blue-collar, middle-class town, um, very diverse. Uh, but it was a large high school. I graduated with about 450 students. Uh, my senior year. And uh, so we were in the largest classification in New York. Uh, in, uh, at the time, it was just A. And now it's uh, it's double A uh, as they've expanded the, the classifications a little bit. But uh, grew up about eight minutes from Long Beach and the Atlantic Ocean, uh, which was great. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my parents 
still live in the same house that they uh, bought before they had me. So they've, they've been here for almost 40 years now. And, um, and, uh, it's, it's great. You know, I, I try to get back as much as I can in, in the summer months and, and get some beach time. And, um, my sister, uh, she's three years younger than me. She, uh, her and uh, her husband uh, bought a house in Massapequa a few years ago out in, uh, uh, a little bit further east in Nassau County and just had a, a baby girl about 14 months ago. So been playing with, uh, been, you know, hanging out with the niece as much as possible, uh, you know, throughout the time of, uh, of all this going on. But, um, you know, it just in New York, because you're so close to the city and you have the beach and, uh, you know, and, and you have a good mix of, of suburban and, and then just the, the city half an hour away by subway, by uh, train. Uh, it, it was a really great place to grow up. I really enjoyed it. Coach, what sort of high school basketball career did you have? Yeah, so uh, I, I got onto varsity as a sophomore. And at the time, there were there were some guys that were, were ahead of me as juniors and, and seniors. And, um, and uh, so I kind of shuffled between varsity and JV for a good portion of my sophomore year. And um, junior year, senior year, I mean, obviously started uh, both both seasons and the, the thing about Long Island basketball at that time and it's changed quite a bit in the last several years but I mean I in our classification we were going up against scholarship players almost every night and we were fairly undersized as a as a team in that league uh, my my senior year especially um, so I'm, I'm going against guys that are six seven six eight that have division two scholarships a couple division one scholarships one uh, ended up going after going to junior college for a couple of years, ended up was a starting point guard at Arkansas for his last two years of his college career. So um, I played against really good competition and hopefully, you know, kind of looking back on it, it prepared me for, you know, for a decent college career. But, um, you know, I would have, I would have liked to have a little more success as a, in my high school career, just from terms of wins and losses and, and uh, you know, and standing in in the conference in the County, but, uh, overall, it was you know you're playing against great competition every night. So, uh, as a as an aspiring college player, that's all you can ask for. What was your recruitment like, and what did your decision really come down to as far as reasons uh, to go to a certain school? Yep. So, like most Division three student athletes, it usually comes down to money, and and it did for me also. And and the, my my top two choices were Union College and Schenectady, upstate New York and Brandeis University out in Boston. And uh, both of those are private schools that were very expensive, uh, schools that my family and I couldn't afford. And um, so Geneseo, uh, which is a state school up near Rochester and Buffalo was, uh, was my third choice. I had a cousin up there uh, who was two year, is two years older than me, uh, who enjoyed his time there. And I was actually recruited by uh, the previous coach, the coach that I didn't play for, his name was Steve Holmes. Uh, who ended up uh, in between my junior and senior high school, uh, took a head job at Salisbury in Maryland. And uh, he was there for a number of years. And uh, so he was recruiting me. He left to Salisbury, tried to get me to, to go to Salisbury, which is what wasn't a school that I was interested in. And so I had actually reached out with the new coach at Geneseo, who was from Ohio and didn't really know much about New York at the time. And uh, kind of started my recruitment as a as a self recruit, and, and it went from there. Um, and so I went up there and, and really enjoyed my time up there. Was a part of a very big recruiting class uh, since it was my coach's first one, um, you know, since taking over the program. So 
I came in with nine other freshmen. So we had a recruiting class of 10 and only myself and one other senior uh, made it all four years uh, of their career. So two out of 10 lasted four years. And he was a division three All-American his senior, our senior year. And uh, Joe Zara, he had a, a phenomenal career up there, just got inducted to the Hall of Fame at Geneseo a couple of years ago. Um, but it was it was a, a, a good experience. We had some good teams. Uh, we won 20 my junior year. And, um, you know, the biggest thing for me with the recruitment is it was just finding the best fit for myself education wise and and just setting foot on on a campus and feeling like it was home. And that wasn't as much the case of Geneseo compared to Union and Brandeis, just because Geneseo was much more of a uh, of a, a rural area. It was cow country there the alfalfa would be cut from farms 10 minutes down the road and it would still, you'd smell like it, uh, you know, walking from the outside back to the inside. And uh, the first semester was a, was a culture shock. And um, you know, nine 11 is, is tomorrow. And um, you know, nine 11 happened um, my uh, two weeks into my freshman year of college. So being six hours away and having that happen uh, in addition to it, just being a very different environment than you used to when you grew up uh, it was a, the first semester was was kind of a culture shock, but uh, I, I really enjoyed my time up there. That's awesome, Coach. Talk about, you know, with 9-11 going on, you being in New York, what sort of conversations did you have with your coach, your the faculty as a team? You know, talk about the madness going on at that time. Yeah, so uh, I was actually the only uh, player on the team at that point that was from – either New York City, Long Island, anything that would be considered quote unquote downstate New York. And uh, when it happened, I was actually uh, the first plane hit and I was actually still sleeping. I didn't have a class until two o'clock that day. It was a Tuesday. And uh, my next door neighbor knocks on my door, banging on my door, David, David, wake up, uh, turn on the TV. And I'm like half asleep. And I'm like, what channel? And he says, any channel. And that's that was the first time I knew like something was was a little bit off. And as I turned the TV on, uh, just as I turned it on, I saw the second plane going into the towers. And to see that uh, was was just like, you, you almost, you're just numb. You don't know what you're even watching. And so about an hour later, I get a call uh, in my room from my college coach, uh, Steve Minton. And he was just checking on me to see how I was doing, making sure that I didn't have any family um, that uh, had been working in, in uh, any of the towers or in the financial district, which I didn't. Um, and everybody was safe, thank God. And, um, you know, and, and then after that, it was, um, you know, I was talking to teammates, talking to, to other freshmen on my, on my floor in, in my dorm. Uh, I went to my class at two o'clock and it was, a, it was a discussion about, you know, what had gone on, um, you know, just in the classroom. And uh, it was just a very, very scary time. And actually Geneseo had some, uh, free buses that were taking students that were from this area down, uh, down back home uh, for that weekend. So it happened on Tuesday. And I remember coming down on Friday and still seeing smoke coming from the towers uh, on Friday. So that was, you know, talk about 72 hours later, which was uh, just uh, an image I'll never forget. Uh, and then after that, it was just obviously commemorating and, and, you know, remembering the, the people who were lost and the first responders and, and everybody, you know, I had friends of mine who lost parents and lost other relatives and family friends and, and you name it. And it's, it's pretty strange. You know, I talk about 19 years now, and now we're recruiting student athletes that ha were not even alive on, on September 11th and trying to teach them about what, you know, what that was like and, 
um, you know, because they've they've obviously never experienced it firsthand. They're reading about it in, in a book or or watching a documentary about it and uh, it being very very different. So um, the whole thing is surreal, but but I think it's very important just every year to think about um, not only uh, you know how how fortunate we are. Uh, to still be here and, and uh, you know, and healthy and all that. But also, um, you know, I think more importantly is what the country was like on September 12th and how everybody came together and helped each other out and, and the differences that we seemingly have now in a very polarized country uh, all kind of melted away on September 12th, 20, uh, 2001. For sure. You know, your coach uh, from college, Steve Minton, is still the head coach there entering his 21st season at the helm. What are some things that you learned from him? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he had a very, he had a very uh, quick fuse. He had a temper for sure. Um, he was, a, he was a tough coach to play for. Um, but I think, uh, I think at the end of the day, um, the number one thing I learned was not something I learned when I played for him, but it was when, after I graduated is I have a far better relationship with him now than I ever did as a student athlete. And that's not to say I didn't have a, at least a decent relationship with him uh, than I did. Uh, but the things that he's done for me uh, and, and the way in which he's uh, continued to stay in touch with me and, and the way he reaches out and, and that he um, will go out of his way uh, to, to help you out in any facet of life, you know, and this is now, uh, you know, talking about I graduated in 2005, so 15 years later. Um, and I think that was the number one thing I, I took from, from him. And that's something I've, I've tried to make, uh, that I do as a, as a coach myself and, um, and, you know, birthdays and, and weddings and, and, uh, you know, babies and, and ceremonies and, and all these different things. Um, and just checking in, you know, once a month, a couple times a year, whatever, a few times a year, whatever, um, you know, even if you weren't particularly close with that player, they're still, a part of your family because, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're a part of a program and a team together. So um, that's, that's a, a very, very uh, big thing for me is just how well he has stayed connected with me uh, since I've left there as a, as a student athlete and, and the ways in which he's still been a, a mentor to me in, in life. That's great coach. When did you realize that you wanted to be a coach and furthermore, a college basketball coach? Um, I've always had an interest in coaching. I always thought about it in the back of my mind, uh, you know, growing up high school, college, the more I, the further along I went in my college career, the more I wanted to make it a career and not just a job, like, you know, a high school coach where you're, you're a teacher first, or you're coming from another job. And then, you know, two forty-five, you're getting to the gym and three o'clock, you're starting practice. I, I wanted to make it a career and, uh, I was very fortunate that Tom Spanbauer, who was the, still is the head coach at Cortland, um, and my college coach were were uh, were friends uh, in the SUNYAC. And um, when I applied for uh, his job, his opening as an assistant at Cortland, it was a it was a really good fit. I actually turned down uh, two assistant jobs at Division two schools to just interview at Cortland. And one of the coaches, who was a coach down here. Uh, still to this day, I see him, uh, you know, fairly often in New York and he'll still rankle me a little bit that I turned him down for an assistant job at a scholarship school to go and, in his words, you know, be a division three assistant. And, and I never looked at it, at it that way. I was very comfortable at the division three level. 
Um, I knew Cortland was not a typical Division three school in the way in which uh, athletics was a, was a greater part of, of the college life and, uh, and the overall college mission. And for three years, I learned, I learned more in three years working for, for SPAN uh, than I probably have in any other three years of my, of my coaching career uh, up to this point. So uh, he was a great coach, the way in which he did things somewhat, you know, some of the things he did were a little bit more unorthodox than others, but the way in which he prepared uh, a team to, to play their best basketball in February and in March, um, you know, and just the organization and, and the learning, um, you know, the learning, uh, you know, nuggets and, and different things that, that he, he looked and, and felt that he was a coach uh, and he was a teacher first and foremost, and just basketball was the medium that he used to, to reach the student athletes and uh, everything was a teachable moment with him. And, and that's something that I really came to admire and appreciate. What are some differences between the coaching philosophies of Coach Minton and Coach Spam? Um, well, I think there were more similarities than differences, uh, which is probably why the two of them got along well and, and still do. Um, but I, I think it was it was more about the whole rather than uh, than certain parts. You know, the 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 offense, the defense, the um, you know the way in which a program was run, the way in which practices were designed. Um, it was all about the, getting the the entirety of the of the crew um, to play better, and it wasn't necessarily focused on just one or two guys. Um, the way in which you use your bench, the way in which you, you make sure that everybody feels valued and appreciated. Um, there were differences. Uh, the way in which they played, uh, style wise, you know, we played. Uh, uh, we utilize the Princeton offense in college at Geneseo, and, and it's still an offense that I'm, I'm very familiar with. I've used at other stops along my coaching career um, to this day, uh, where Span, um, you know, if you had an open three and you passed it up, uh, you were coming out. Where at Geneseo, if you had an open three on a, on a transition break and there was 29 left on the shot clock, 28 left on the shot clock, and um, and, and you, uh, and you shot the ball, you were, you were probably coming out no matter how good of a shooter you were. So there were differences in that way, but I, I thought as the way in which they ran their programs and what was most important to them, uh, they were very similar. And I think that was a really good introduction to, uh, you know, to beginning my coaching career and, and obviously, uh, you know, beginning my, you know, my coaching philosophies and, and, and what's going to shape me and, and the rest of my career. That's great coach. What made you want to pursue your master's degree? You ultimately earned it from SUNY Cortland the year after you left uh, for a position at Denison. Yeah, so it was one of those things that I knew just, I think part of it was professional and part of it was personal. Uh, the personal side of things, I knew just my own personality. If I wasn't going to get it right away, it would have made it that much harder to get it. So I thought that, you know, with uh, being a state employee, uh, then paying for half my master's as, as a state employee. And so that was obviously uh, an important factor in it as well. Um, they had a sports management master's, and I thought that would at least be, at least be something that I'd be interested in, in studying and, and taking, which it was. And I was very happy to do it and, and uh, you know, thankful that I got it done. Um, but also just looking at the, at the overall profession and talking to some other people uh, at that time, and I think it's even more prevalent now, that if you wanted to be a head coach, especially at the division three level where education and, you know, it's not, you know, it's a different level than division one and division two in terms of what the qualifications are and what they're looking for and, and, and all of that and what's going to set you apart. 
Um, I really felt that if I was going to be a head coach, I really needed to make sure I had my master's, uh, you know, when I was interviewing for jobs. So uh, I wanted to make sure I got that completed and finalized, which is what I was able to do uh, at Cortland. And, um, you know, and, and obviously it's opened some doors for me in, in uh, you know, in my career thus far. After Cortland, you know, you spent two years at Denison from 2008 to 2010. Talk about those two seasons and, did you enjoy being out of New York? Um, so Ohio and upstate New York were very similar um, because you're talking about rural areas and, and Denison was about a half an hour away from Columbus, uh, which is a really cool city. You know, you have Ohio State there, uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets had just opened up an NHL arena in downtown Columbus. So you had that and, um, and all that. So it, it really, you're, you're rural in Ohio, uh, but you're, you're a half an hour away from a, a fairly big city in Columbus. So I, I like the, the combination of that. Um, my college coach, like I mentioned before, is from Ohio. He knew, uh, a, you know, vaguely a little bit more acquaintances than, than friends of Bob Galoni, who I worked for at Denison. And so, uh, you know, Bob was interviewing some other guys and didn't know much about me at all. And they flew me up for an interview. And uh, I remember the, the answer that I really felt earned me the job was a question that Bob had asked um, and there was a, a bunch of committee members in the room and um, and he said, you know, if you were to get this job, what's the very first thing that you would do as a member of our staff? And I said, you offer me the job and the very next words out of my mouth besides thank you is I need the phone numbers of all the players uh, that are on the team right now or incoming freshmen. Um, so that I can get to know them and, and start to build a relationship with them over the phone. And he had this this smirk, this smile, and he was somebody unlike me. I, I don't have a great poker face. I, I, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. And uh, Bob's exactly the opposite. You know, he's a very stoic guy. He's a very uh, black and white guy. There's not a lot of gray. Um, you know, he, he grew up in a military family. He's very regimented with a lot of things he does. And he had the smile like almost like a, like a Cheshire cat smile. And I, I thought that that was, that was the answer that kind of set me apart from, from, from most others. Um, in his program, before I got there, he had told me that there were some uh, issues that they had with, with retaining student athletes and, and, and building a cohesive team. So he said, Hey, you know, you, you're, you're going to have your own office design it however you want. And, and it's, you know, build, build relationships with the players. So, I actually went to a discount furniture place. And I got a, a, a pretty decent sized sofa. I got a mini fridge that you have in, in like a college dorm room. I used to fill that up with Gatorades and waters. I went to like uh, Costco or BJ's or Sam's Club and I got a whole bunch of snacks. And so I used to keep my office stocked. So I had a, a comfy couch. I had a, a refrigerator full of cold drinks and I had a whole bunch of, of snacks. And I used to say to the players, like, you can come in, you can take anything you want in this office and eat it, drink it. I don't care. The only rule is you have to do it in the office. And so and now like they don't care because they're eating and drinking and it's free food and, and all that. And they're college students, but uh, they spend time in the office. So before practices, my office used to be like, like a party central where seven or eight guys are having snacks and drinking and, and talking with each other and talking with me. And, and, uh, and so it almost became like a little bit like a pseudo frat house in the sense that, um, you know, everybody wanted to spend time in the office. 
Now, is it bribery? Yeah, a little bit. And they knew it and they, and they were okay with it. But that's how I built the relationships with those guys. And then the longer I was there, guys used to come in and just want to sit on the couch and talk. Hey, you want something to drink? No, coach, I'm good. You want something to eat? No, I ate a half an hour ago. I was just coming to, to talk and say hi. And, and that's and that's building relationships. And that's, you know, it's on their terms. You're not forcing anything on them. And, and they're talking about what they, you know, what's on their mind, what they want to talk about. And it's not because they have to be there. And, um, you know, so that was that was the number one thing I took away from that part of my coaching career was, you know, different unique ways of, of trying to build relationships, doing it on their terms, even if it's on your turf a little bit. Um, but they're, you know, they don't feel like it is because they're making you, your office their own. And, and, uh, and I never once you know, hated uh, a player coming into my office. I used to love it. Coach, I've heard a lot of advice on this podcast from guests. That might be some guests that I've heard yet. I'm definitely adding that to my toolbox because we never create anything our own in coaching. I'm going to feel that just like we do in offenses. <laughs> I love it. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, you coach Nate Schmidt, who's now the coordinator of player development at Iowa State. Talk about your relationship with him. And did he always think like a coach – during your during his time as a player at Denison, yeah. So I'll be honest. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a a, a, a big part of of the team when I was there. Um, you know, he he was only on the team one out of the uh, one out of the two years I was there. Um, and uh, you know, he he kind of he you wouldn't have thought I wouldn't have thought. And, and I still talk to Nate every so often, and and he's had a you know, really good uh, progression in his coaching career uh, to this point, and, and I'm sure he'll continue to, to move higher. Um, but there wasn't there wasn't um, a lot that I thought at, at that time about him that led to me thinking that he was gonna you know, that he was gonna be in the you know the Big Twelve or he was gonna be in high major Division One college basketball coaching and all that. Um, but I think that it's a tribute to him in that if you truly love something and you're willing to put the time and the effort and the energy into uh, trying to make a, a goal happen, um, then you're able to do that. You know, like there's no one path. I say this a lot. And I know you've heard me say this on other podcasts I've done. That there's no one direct path uh, or right path in this profession. Um, you know, there's, there's certain progressions that will lend itself to giving you, giving you a better chance to be successful. Um, but you know, you like, do you have to be a college basketball player to be a coach? No. I mean, that's been, that's been proven time and time again. Um, do you have to be a good college player? No, you don't even have to be a, a decent college player. Um, you know, you could be like Josh Pastner who, uh, you know, the head coach at Georgia tech, who was at Arizona for a number of years. And obviously Lute Olson passed away last week and he was his right-hand man. Um, you know, he was a, he was a manager at, at, uh, Arizona and then he was a walk-on and barely played and and then like just he worked his way up and kept outworking people and knew as many people as he could and recruiting and X and O's and everything else and and turned himself into a high major division one head coach at, at multiple places so there's no one path to being successful uh, and, and Nate's you know another example of that but uh, I think if you love uh, the game enough and you're willing to put the time in and you don't look at it as a as a nine to five job and you, you network and, and you know, make relationships with people 
um, good people uh, that would help you out in the business that know other people. And uh, that's, that's the key to, to, to being successful. Coach, that kind of leads into my next question as far as relationships uh, and networking. What camps did you work during those early years in coaching? Yeah, uh, Hoop Group was a big one. I know a lot of guys say it. I mean, Rob Kennedy, what he's built with the Hoop Group. I, mean, I remember going to Eastern Invitational at TCNJ when I was in high school, and that was the old uh, Hoop Group. And, um, you know, it turned into from Eastern into, into Hoop Group. And, um, you know, the coaches that I met, and, and it wasn't just – actually, it really wasn't um, – you know, guys that were above me that like, oh, I hope he hires me one day. It was much more about like the other assistants that I was working camps with that we were all kind of in the same boat and bouncing ideas off each other and, and uh, you know, and, and certain relationships that I still have, you know, friends of mine to this day in the, in the profession. Um, and some of them have stayed in the profession and others have, have left coaching. Um, but Hoop Group was a big one. Um, I worked some other camps in, in Pennsylvania and, and some other um, you know, some other college camps, uh, Hofstra and, uh, you know, a local one here in New York. Uh, so I got to know uh, the coaches there uh, very well. And, and Mike Kelly, who was an assistant at Hofstra and then at Fordham, and he's a head coach at St. Dominic's High School down here in, on Long Island. Um, you know, he's still uh, one of my best friends in, in coaching and, and does a phenomenal job with, with everything he does. So, um, you know, you, you, you meet people, you don't know who you're going to meet when you, you know, first start working camps, but they're so important in terms of building your philosophy and, and meeting people and just, you know, kind of just seeing how other people interact and, and act and, and what they do on a daily basis. And, and you kind of put it up against what you're doing and, okay, Oh, that's, you know, that's, I really like the way he, he, he handles himself in, in a, in a practice drill or a station or coaching a game or, or whatever it is. And, and you start to, to think about those things in your own career and your own philosophy and, and, you know, sooner or later, they become part of you, of you as well. Coach, after two years in Ohio, you moved back to New York and spent four years as an assistant coach at the United States Merchant Marine Academy. For four years, you know, you're there. Has New York always been your comfort zone as far as where you wanted to live and coach? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think in a perfect world, yes. I mean, this is this is home to me. Uh, I love New York City. I love New York. I love this area. I love being close to family and friends and and all that. But at the same time, I don't think I've ever taken a job just because of where it was location-wise. You know, so I'm in Ohio at, at Denison. The job comes open at Merchant Marine. I knew one or two people that worked in the athletic department there uh, before I got there, and and uh, you know, was just thought that it was a good uh, next step in my career. But also, I think more than the location. I really wanted diversity within my resume of the types of schools that I coached at. So I had been at Cortland, which was a state school. I had been at Denison, which was a private liberal arts university. And then I go to Merchant Marine, which is a federal service academy. So now I've essentially been at the only three types of schools in higher ed that there really are. Um, and then I go up to Maine and, and that was very rural. And I come back to New York and John Jay and NYU couldn't be any more urban. So I love the diversity within my resume and my portfolio and, and the places I've been that I could go to an inner city high school. I could go to a, a private uh, sprawling campus type of high school and everywhere in between. 
and feel very comfortable and very confident in my surroundings and that I can relate to the uh, recruit that I'm trying to recruit or the family that I'm, I'm interacting with or the high school coach or the prep coach or you name it. Um, so New York is, is definitely a comfort zone for me, David, but I, I think more than anything else, the, the, the choices that I've made in my career of where I've gone, um, the types of schools that they were played much more of a factor in my decision-making than in the location that they, that they took place in. You know, as an assistant coach, you helped recruit 10 freshmen from nine different states. So obviously, you know, as you just finished saying, you're able to relate to you know, tons of different uh, types of kids from different backgrounds. How did you build that sort of network with AAU and high school coaches that you trusted and interacted with on a regular basis? A lot of time and effort, number one. Um, you know, Denison uh, was my first entry into national recruiting. Uh, Cortland, we, we just recruited in New York State, so I never, I never had to uh, jump on a plane to go recruit anywhere. And, you know, AAU tournaments in New York are very different than AAU tournaments in Orlando or Louisville, Kentucky or Vegas or you name it. Um, but I, building on some of the relationships I had built early on at Denison uh, for starters. And then, um, you know, just just networking and talking to people. I, I actually really, truly, even though I've used it a few times in the, in the podcast, I, I don't like the word networking when it comes to building relationships. And like networking seems so transactional. And, and I, I've always felt that, that you win with people and that the better the people that, that are surrounding you in, in, in your personal life, in your professional life, everywhere in between, I think the, the more successful you'll become just because you're around, you know, great people uh, that you trust that, that, you know, are looking out for you and that you're looking out for them. Um, but just one story in particular, I mean, there's a, there's an AU coach out in Indiana. One of the guys that I, I got to go to Merchant Marine. Um, he uh, was in, uh, in the, like right around Notre Dame area, Mishawaka and South Bend. And uh, he has a really good AU program there. I mean, they've sent guys to Notre Dame and, and division three and everywhere in between. And, um, and I used to go the first week of the live period in July, I used to go to the Adidas tournaments in, in Indy. And I used to hop off a plane and I used to give the guy a call and I used to say, listen, I don't know who you have on your team. Um, but I want to know your, you know, what time you're, you're playing tonight in your first game. And I like that used to be my first stop. Um, every single time I would go to Indy, that I would go see his team play. And I watched his team one year. And there's this kid that literally is playing the hardest of anybody I've ever seen play in person in my life at any level. And he's, and he's loving it. Like he's diving on the floor and he's getting up and he's got a big smile on his face. Uh, for New Yorkers, he reminded me like of, of a present day uh, Brandon Nimmo where he would like sprint to first base after getting you know, hit you know, with, a, with a pitch or he would sprint around the bases after a home run. Like that's the type of kid that this kid was. And, um, and uh, you know, after really a, a couple weeks of recruiting him, he says to me, coach, this is, this is where I want to be. And I would have never found this kid had I not had the relationship with the AAU coach, just like, I know you have a good program. I know your kids play hard. I know they do the right things. You have kids that I would want in my program. Um, you know, so I'm just going to come watch you guys play. And if you don't have anybody for me this year, no problem. I saw you on my, my trip to Indianapolis and I'll, I'll catch you next July. And, uh, you know, that relationship lent itself to a, a player that, that was very, very good at Merchant Marine that 
unfortunately, I didn't even get to coach. I recruited him in my last year there. Um, so he's not a part of that 10 person recruiting class, but, but that's how you build the relationship. So I, I, that was the first kid that I was able to get from that AAU program in about four or five years of knowing the coach. But if I hadn't built that relationship the three or four years prior, I would have never gotten Christian Wittendorf to come to Merchant Marine and play uh, at Kings Point and have a great career. And I still keep in touch with him and his family at least once a month. Um, so it's, uh, you know, that's, it's a lot of time and a lot of effort. But if you love people and you genuinely value relationships, it, it doesn't feel like work. Coach, talk about, you know, the circumstances on uh, how you became a head coach. Very unique. Uh, certain things I still can't talk about to this day, and I know you understand. Um, it was it was a very difficult situation in that one day you are very unsure of what the program is going to look like and be and who's going to be a part of it. And the next day you go into the athletic director's office and she says, you're the interim head coach. And you're going to tell the team before practice today. And if you need me for anything, I'm here. Um, the problem was I was the only assistant at the time. So when I became the head coach, there was literally nobody else on staff but me. And so I actually, uh, Jimmy Robertson, who's now the head football coach at FDU Florham, uh, was uh, a part, he was, uh, was what they call an intern, but he wasn't a full-time assistant at, at Merchant Marine. Uh, so he didn't have as much responsibility uh, in the wintertime. And I, I asked him, I said, I need you to do me a favor. Like, I'm not asking you to travel on the road, nothing like that, but I just need you at practices. If you could be on the bench during home games, like whatever you can do. And a mix of Jimmy and Matt Dempsey, who is still the women's coach at Merchant Marine, um, they, were, <laughs> they were the only assistant or only other staff members on the bench that I had for those last 12 games of, of my last year, Merchant Marine. Um, very difficult. Uh, so the players, when, when everything happened and I, I took over and um, the morale was, was super low um, and, and to try to find a way to, to pick morale back up and, and to try to just change the, the overall mood of, of you know, and, and to help the two seniors have the best experience that they could the rest of their senior year, which they have been obviously looking forward to for three and a half years. So, um, you know, we did some things and, um, you know, I, I could talk about one or two if you want, but um, really it was just maintaining um, my positivity, the way in which I conduct myself every day and not changing just because my title had changed. My relationship stayed the same. The only difference would be that my voice would be the last one that they would hear instead of the second to last one, maybe. Um, but otherwise, it was just keeping the players positive, um, moving them forward in the, in the right direction, listening to, to things that they wanted to implement, holding them accountable when I could, and, and just trying to have as much fun as we could in those last 12 games. And, and uh, we had a, a good stretch. And, and uh, we went from last place in the Landmark Conference, which was a very tough league at that time, um, to making it to the, the conference uh, tournament semifinals and, and losing to the eventual uh, winner in Scranton. So um, it was a it was a successful last twelve games, I would say. Um, the two seniors had a great experience in their their final games as a as a Mariner, and and for me, it was just to try to make the most out of that time and and kind of learn on the fly as best I could. 
Coach, I always say on the podcast, I have more time than money. So, yeah, let's hear a couple of those stories. <laughs> well, um, you know, the, the one that I think other people have heard um, to this point, uh, if, if you haven't heard me on other, on other podcasts, I talk about, you know, a play on, on the Mariner theme and, and that I, I went to an arts and crafts store. Uh, so I, I took over the program in the middle of the week. We go up to Susquehanna. Uh, lose a tough game at Susquehanna, come back that Saturday night. And Sunday, I went into a, into a home goods store and basically bought uh, all the arts and crafts that you would need to make um, some sort of nautical anchor. So it was, an, it was a wooden anchor that I, that I gorilla glued onto with the help of a lot of family. Um, it was like kind of like Sunday dinner, arts and crafts time. It was what it was. Um, but uh, took an anchor, uh, gorilla glued it onto um, a circular piece of wood, and then had a, a really thick nautical rope that went around the whole the whole circle, uh, and then we tied it in a knot. So I came into practice on Monday with it around my neck like I was Flavor Flav, and <laughs> and 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 they and the guys like they cracked up hysterical laughing. They're like, Coach, what the hell are you doing? And I came in with uh, with a with a teachable moment type of thing. I came in with, with um, Xerox copies of, of uh, and it was laminated and uh, it was basically the definition of an anchor and talking about what that meant and, and how do we apply it to our last 11 games of the season. Um, and uh, the guys bought into it. So we use that as like the practice player of the day award. Uh, if, you, uh, if you won it the day before a game, you took it uh, on the road with us or you brought it to the bench if it was a home game. We kept it on the bench with us. There were pictures of like team huddles with it right, right there in the, in the, in the first seat. Um, and it kind of became a little bit of a, of a rallying cry for us, but I did a whole bunch of different things. Some, some, some teachable moments, some nuggets, some stories, some quotes, some uh, you name it. And like every day before practice, we tried to do something that was, that was educational, but also put the players in a, in a right frame of mind for practice and, for what we had accomplished that day, but that anchor was like was became our identity. It became part of of who that program was at that time, and um, and I still have it. All the guys signed the back of it, and um, you know, and it's something that I, every office I've had since leaving Kings Point, uh, I've had it in in the office, and um, you know, and and have it right there on a, on a hook right by my desk, and I look at it as as just a testament to what you know what what a, a team can do when they come together for a common goal, no matter, no matter what the adversity in front of them. Coach, I love it. Now, when you found out you were going to be the interim head coach, because again, I, I, like you, I can't talk about specifics, but there was a situation where AD brought me in and said, Hey, listen, you might be the only one on the bench. <laughs> Did you think to yourself, man, I really can't get teed up this game or, you know, I, <laughs> I got to coach a little different than I would if I had someone else on the bench with me. Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I was, I was, yes. I mean, that, that's obviously in the back of your head, but no, in the sense that I, I was way more positive than I was negative. Like I can only remember, and actually probably the two biggest wins we had in that stretch was at Catholic and at Juniata. And both places, and you might take offense to this. So will Ryan Highland at John Jay, who was a, a Catholic guy, and I, I don't I don't care. Um, those are two places that were notorious for you. You were getting 
you were going to get jobbed with with the whistle and you 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 were going to smile and you were going to like it and i wasn't playing that game and i it was part of me making sure that the players knew that i was going to fight for them and uh and so i i took offense with with many calls in both of those games um thankfully wasn't teed up in either one of them i don't think i had a tee uh in any of the 12 games at uh, at merchant marine as the interim head coach thankfully um but no i i i think i think i knew where the line was and and i knew i couldn't get to the line my personality is i'm always gonna i'm gonna test the limit a little bit i'm gonna see how far i can push that line i knew i couldn't do that with the circumstances that uh, you know that was presented to me there but um by no means was i gonna sit on my hands and let you know and let you know just the referees call whatever they wanted and not have any you know have anything from me so um, you know, yeah, the, the, the two games I thought I was the hardest on the referees, uh, I think were probably the two best wins that we had then. And, um, you know, is that the reason? No. But at the same time, the players knew that I was going to fight for every inch for them. So they were going to they were going to have to fight for every inch for each other. And, and that's what they did. So let me get this straight. You're insinuating that Steve Howes uh, lobbied and got calls at Catholic. I- I'm shocked. <laughs> You're shocked. Uh, everybody's shocked. Uh, the the post game press conference is shocked. Uh, the only person who's not shocked are Steve Howes and the and the guy. No, I, I like <laughs> I like Steve. I mean he he actually, to be honest with you, of all of all the coaches in the landmark, and there were many uh, that were very supportive of of the circumstances and and all that, and and just you know what can I do to help? And is there anything you need? You're coming in you're coming to, to us tomorrow. Is there anything that, that I can help you with, with all that? And, and, and Steve was good. I mean, he's a competitor. He, he hated my guts for those 40 minutes. I know that for a fact. Um, still to this day, I know it for a fact. There wasn't a single second. He enjoyed uh, being on the opposite sideline with, with me because I, I was, uh, you know, I was, a, I was a crazy person in a positive way. Um, but at the same time before and after, and still like when I see him on occasion, like he's, he's nothing but, but complimentary and supportive and, and all that. But, um, no, at DC, the same as, as everybody that used to come into New York and used to say that all the New York referees were only like homers and all that, which they were, and that was okay. Um, so, so going, going to DC and especially going to Juniata. And uh, my, my assistant at Maine Maritime my first year was Brian Sholley, who played at Juniata, had a great career. Um, I coached against him all four years when I was at Merchant Marine. And we used to joke around about it all the time in Maine that the only referees that were worse than Vermont officials were Pennsylvania ones. And, and he, <laughs> never, he never disputed that for a second, so I knew it was on to something. Oh, I agree with him on that. Coach, how much did you change as far as the playbook and the rotation? You know, obviously you talked about changing the culture and, and really, you know, turning that switch on. But, you know, how much as far as playbook and rotation? Good question. Uh, the rotation, so that was actually kind of done for me a little bit in the sense that, so our our first game we played at Susquehanna on a Saturday, we, uh, we played on that – Tuesday or Wednesday and lost that game also. And then we were home uh, against Juniata on that Saturday. And so we had lost two in a row. We were one and five or one and six at the time. Um, I took over. We were one and four. So we were one and six. And uh, we had a couple guys that were late to shoot around that morning. And one of them was a starter. 
And in the back of my mind, I thought that we were a little bit too slow playing two bigs and wanted to try to change things up a little bit, especially after, after two losses. And the decision was kind of made for me. The starter, we didn't start him. We entered in who I, who I was thinking about attempting to, to start. And he goes out and he hits his first three threes in the first couple minutes of the of the first half. And I think we were six for six, our first six threes against against Juniata that afternoon. And uh, and we we played very very well and we ended up winning. And that was that was the uh, that was the change we made moving forward. And and we kept the starting lineup with the exception of a of an injury at the point guard spot. Uh, that was really the only thing we did all year. You know, we went a little bit smaller. We put four guys around one big. Um, so that helped our, our playbook a little bit in terms of some things we did uh, to try to get a little bit more spacing for Nick Sergio, who was a very good post player at the time, uh, to get him a little bit more space. And he was a senior, and I wanted to try to make sure we kept empowering him that we were gonna, you know, we were gonna be led by by him. Uh, and Zach Karchevsky, who was another great senior, who was a, a forward that did a little bit of everything. Um, but those two guys led us. So a little bit of tweaks with the offense, but that the, the first thing that came was, was uh, the lineup change. And that was, that was done for me really like, Oh, you're late to a shoot around. Okay. You know, we're going to make this change. And so that helped my credibility a little bit that, you know, Hey, this guy is going to hold us accountable. Uh, and it worked out. And, and I think that was, I think the lineup change was maybe the number one reason why uh, we had some success and the guys bought into it. And, and we went from there. You know, you received the the college's Coach of the Year award at the conclusion of the 2013-14 season. How surprised were you to receive that accolade? Very. Um, so I was the, the first and still the only interim head coach that's ever received that award. And I know that there were there were people within the athletic department and people have been there a long time that, um, you know, that didn't like the fact that that you know, tradition had been changed a little bit with with me receiving that award um but it was it was done by like a campus-wide vo- vote and committee of like a whole bunch of different people from all walks of of the uh, the academy so it wasn't just an athletic uh award where they were voting on it just in the department it was it was across the campus um so i was i was very honored um because of the coaches that had won it before i did um i was very honored in the way in which our players had conducted themselves and and played hard through the very last whistle of the season and how they could have very easily given up. You know, we were one in six and we had a coaching change and we had a lineup change and we had other like just dark clouds that were surrounding the program and over our program. And uh, for the guys to be as positive as they were and embrace what we were trying to do as much as they did and the positive attitude that they came to practice with in games and every, every part of it, every single day, um, was was an inspiration to me and there were plenty of other uh speed bumps along the way the day the game the night before we played catholic at catholic i know you know the story um but we we didn't dress uh six guys because of an incident in the hotel the night, night before the game and that was something that the the two senior captains decided on with my blessing and like the athletic director calls me up that morning and says i don't think you should you should play them and i said I'm not. And she said, well, if they're not going to play, then I don't think they should dress. And I said, I'm not like all of this stuff has been decided already. Like I, I I'm fighting for my professional life here, but I know what right and wrong look like. And I wasn't going to sell my soul just to win a, a game at, at Catholic. So 
we had six guys that stayed dressed in their standard dress blues, which was the which was the uh, official uniform that we had to wear down to to D.C. because of obviously the capital and all that. And uh, we only had eight guys dressed for that game. It was the five starters, our sixth man, and two guys who hadn't played a single meaningful minute in their entire careers. All eight guys played. All eight guys contributed. And uh, and we we had never we we did not. Uh, have to come from behind at any point in that game. We led wire to wire for all 40 minutes and the guys played great. And uh, the six guys that were in their SDBs were, were very supportive and, and they had to win their spots back the next, the next game and the next practice. But I think all those things of, of just doing things the right way um, and running a program the right way, but also not taking any shortcuts because you're an interim or because you want the job the next year or because you're 30 years old and you think you know more than like, like all those things, like you're just trying to do the right thing and what you know in your heart, um, you know, is, is what you should do. And, and uh, I was just thankful that the players, you know, followed some of those things, but, but more often than not, they were the ones to lead. And I was, I was just following them. I love all that coach. It's great stuff. You know, you've spoken on various platforms uh, in the podcast regarding your decision to step down due to health reasons besides physically, how did it affect you emotionally and, and mentally? Uh, it was very hard. Uh, still is in, in some ways uh, because you spend three years putting your, your heart and soul into something. And, and I think that's, and I've said this to, to friends of mine in, in inner circles of mine, you know, I think because it was, it was rural desolate, Maine, where you're seeing more wildlife than people. Um, there's just nothing else to do, especially in the winter month. Like I, I really truly feel that part of me being sick was that I worked myself sick. I wasn't taking care of myself the way I, I should have. Um, I was burning the candle at both ends. We were having a lot of 5.30 a.m. practices because of the regiment, because of class schedules and facility schedules and all that. And we were, we were practicing a lot of 5.30 and I was waking up at 3 a.m every morning and I still wasn't going to sleep before 11 or 12 every night. And, um, you know, so you, you can't survive doing that. You're going to run yourself into the ground. Um, so, so part of that was just like kind of a wake up call that I needed to take care of myself better. But, uh, the, the emotional toll of you put your heart and soul into something and then you're forced to leave it, um, you know, for whatever the circumstance is. And, then you see, you know, you see a new coach that comes in and wants to change everything that you did previously and, um, and put his own spin on it and identity, which is, which is his prerogative. That's fine. Um, but it's, it's not yours anymore. It's not, you're not, you're, you were, you were there, but you're not there anymore. And, um, and I read a story not long after I left Maine. Um, it was one in one of Simon Sinek's books and the story was about the ceramic cup. And I've, I've put it up on Twitter and Instagram a couple different times. And, um, and it's just about that, the, you know, the difference between a, a ceramic cup and a styrofoam cup. And the story was like the, 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 the same person, but two very different positions that he held professionally. And when he held the higher position, he was given a ceramic cup. And when he held the lesser position, he was given a styrofoam cup. And just talking about like the cup isn't meant for you. It's meant for the position that you hold. And so it took me a while to, to really learn that lesson that 
when you're the head coach of a program or you have a job or you're you're a part of something in, in any part of life, you know that's that's not yours. You're you're a place like a, you're a placeholder, and you know, the program has been there long before you. It's going to be there long after you, hopefully. Um, and all you are, you know, you're a placeholder to, you know, making sure that the players have a great experience and that the alumni feel like they're valued and, and that they're welcomed back and and the the administration at the school feels like that you're that you that you're doing the right things and you're a part of the overall campus mission. Uh, all those things are, are are very important for head coaches and and leaders at any level to learn that that the uh, the cup that you're drinking from isn't isn't meant for you. It's meant for uh, the position that you're holding in, um, and that keeps you from from being uh, you know too big you know for your bridges or too having too big of an ego or. Um, or, or thinking that you have a, a greater influence in, in a larger scheme than, than maybe you do if you keep everything in perspective and, and you realize that, uh, you know, that uh, in the last line of the story, that, that the cup meant for me is the styrofoam cup. If you keep that in perspective, I think, um, I think you'll have a better career because of it. Coach, talk about the process of getting back into coaching. Uh, very difficult. So, uh, when I had my second surgery in April, 2017, the end of April, um, I looked at a couple uh, head coaching jobs that, that were open that summer, uh, was a finalist for a couple of them. A couple others just weren't good fits. And uh, it was towards the end of the summer and, and Ryan Highland was obviously at still at John Jay still is. Um, and uh, we had been talking a lot that summer and we talked a lot for the three years that I was in Maine, we were in similar situations growing a program. Uh, me in Maine and, and him at John Jay. And uh, we, we, we kind of talked uh, the end of August, beginning of September. And uh, he said, uh, you know, I can't afford you, but I'd love to have you a part of the staff somehow. And we worked something out and we figured out a way for it to, to work on both of our ends. And, um, and uh, as I like to say, it was, it was uh, the beginnings of a, of, a, of a brotherhood. You know, you go from being acquaintances, coaching against somebody, to being friends when you're in a similar situation and you're able to draw from each other's experiences. And then you become brothers because you work with, with uh, somebody that uh, in Ryan that has no ego about them, that, that lets, lets people do, um, you know, what they, you know, what they're capable of doing and utilize their strengths and, you know, whatever it is. And he never feels threatened uh, if, um, you know, if somebody is, you know, has more knowledge than him about something or speaks louder about something or, or, or speaks in, in a certain scenario or circumstance. He never has an ego about that. And, and so for me, I, I, the, the, the two, like I said earlier, the, the three years that I learned the most was with Span at Cortland. But the two that were the most transformative for my career was working at John Jay with Ryan and that program because of what we were able to accomplish in those two years I was able to help him see through his own rebuilding project where, um, you know, I wasn't able to see my own uh, scenario through up in Maine uh, and, and just see the, the joy and, and the excitement on everybody's face in that program when they're able to see all the, all the fruits of their labor come to, to fruition. Um, it was great. And it, it definitely will help me be a better head coach, you know, if and when I get that next opportunity. Uh, because of the, the, the time I spent with Ryan and, and the voice and the platform that he allowed me uh, when I was at John Jay. What adjustments did you make as far as, you know, whether it's working out or eating better, you know, talk about 
making changes after, you know, obviously a, a tough situation prior. Uh, I think it, it, part of it was that, but a bigger part of it was how I held stress, how long I held on to stress, what what I allowed myself to get agitated about, um, knowing, you know, keeping the, keeping the important thing the important thing. Um, and I think when you're a head coach at a small college like Maine Maritime that had had uh, so few years of success uh, prior to you getting there, uh, you take a lot on your plate of, I want to change as much as possible. Um, and I always thought that it was a mistake to change everything when you become a head coach at a new program. Like you can't come in and just lay an atom bomb to everything because then you're not going to have a lot of credibility in if there are certain things that the players that were part of the previous regime liked or thought worked or they see you as somebody that just wants to change everything just for change sake. And they don't see the real value in those changes. So um, I, I was, I tried to be cognizant of that and not change everything, but I also know that when you're a head coach at, at a place that hadn't had a lot of success and you don't have a big staff and, and all that, and you're, and you're motivated, um, you put a lot on your plate and you try to do everything and just no, no one person is, is capable of doing everything. So um, segmenting and, and keeping important things at the forefront as much as possible, just as a, as a general mindset. Um, I had always worked out, like I've never not been active in my adult life. And, and I worked out a lot when I was in Maine, but it was the taking care of yourself afterwards and the rest and finding other outlets besides the job and besides work and besides basketball, um, you know, to allow yourself that release, I think is very, very important. And that's not, that's something I know I didn't do enough of when I was in Maine. You know, in May of 2019, you're hired by NYU uh, to be an assistant coach, one of the toughest conferences in D3, uh, the UAA. Talk about the level of competition and the, you know, rigorous travel schedule in the conference. Sure. So I, I knew a little bit about it because when I looked at Brandeis as a student athlete, I thought that, that was a really cool thing to be a part of. And then I've had friends of mine that have coached in the UAA, you know, before that. And, um, you know, when I was at Cortland, uh, we used to play Rochester every year. So uh, guys like Ryan, me and Jeff Duran and Ryan Kadlebowski, all guys that have, have coached as assistants at, at, at Rochester and, and played at Rochester. Um, you know, those were, were guys I used to, to ask about how, you know, how the UAA was. And, and I used to always admire it from afar. It, it, to me, it was, it was the preeminent Division three basketball conference in the country. Um, you know, you have the NESCAC and you have the ODAC and a couple others that, that are in that conversation. But I always felt that the UAA was the best league in Division three for basketball in the country. Um, and uh, this year, not only the talent that you're going against every, every night, but the coaches in our league are all phenomenal. I mean, there's not a single program in our league that is even remotely undercoached. Um, you know, you have guys like Jason Zimmerman and, and Luke Flockerzy and, and Gene Bain and, um, you know, just guys that, that, uh, that are, are, are fairly young still. Um, you know, we have a couple older coaches in our conference, but, but guys that are so good at getting their teams to play with the identity that they want, um, you know, those are, those are probably the three hardest teams to prepare for in our league. And I think those are maybe the three best coaches and every coach in our league is good. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish anybody, but, 
Um, but I have so much respect for those three guys and their programs and the success that they that they're having and will continue wow. to have. Um, so you have the travel and you have and you have the academics and you have all that. And then you have to go and lace them up and play the games against guys that are probably going to get paid at some point um, in their professional career to play basketball at the international level or, you know, maybe one or two domestically. So uh, it, it's a great league, uh, tremendous basketball. Um, and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm fortunate to be a part of it because I've never, I've never truly experienced this type of, of talent, this type of travel that the, the resources, the expectations um, that I have at this level with the UAA. You know, uh, Andre Gray was on this podcast and talked about how Conference USA was tough to really have, you know, any uh, rivalries or really even any kind of hatred <laughs> toward other coaches. You know, with the travel distance between schools, how often do you see coaches from the UAA out on recruiting events? Uh, in the summer, a lot. Uh, during the season, not nearly as much, if ever. Um, obviously, different different budgets, you know, allowing you know different staffs to maybe get out a little bit more during the year than than some others. But in the summer, the spring summer, I mean, we're at every single event uh, that that uh, that each other is at. Like you almost take a tally of okay, I'm here and I've seen six other UAA schools and I'm the seventh and I know there's an eighth one lurking around somewhere. Where is he? And sure <laughs> enough, like you, you'll find him. Okay, all oh, the gangs all here. Um, but you know you're in the right place, and, and anything that has high academics and and has high level talent, you know the UAA is going to be out, uh, you know, as much as possible. So, um, you know, a couple guys I've known, um, you know, previous to my experience in the UAA, um, David Sloan uh, is an assistant at Carnegie Mellon. He was an assistant for me my last year at uh, at Maine Maritime. Um, you know, so I obviously I, I know him, you know, pretty well, and. Uh, Sam Rubenstein, who's at Brandeis, who worked for the Hoop Group for a number of years prior to that. Um, so, I mean, it's a good league with great coaches, but but all the, you know all the programs, all the the universities, in terms of the combination of athletics and academics, I mean, it speaks for itself and it sells itself. And and we frequently recruit you know the same type of guys, um, you know, every single year. Uh, you know, hey, who else you're looking at? And sure enough, they'll they'll almost always name half the half the conference. So. Um, that that also makes you realize that you're in the right place with the right guy. You know, at, at NYU, you, got, you guys aren't necessarily doing a rebuild, but, you know, you're putting the start to a new era after Joe retired in 2018. The guy spends 30 years as the head coach. You know, talk about that process. Yeah, so Dagan was there a year. Dagan and, and Dante Milligan, our other full-time assistant, who does a phenomenal job. I, I didn't know much about Dante before working with him, and and uh, you know I, I've just really enjoyed um, you know working alongside him the last year plus. Um, but uh, you know, anytime I think you, you you take over for a guy that's been there for as long as as Joe Neshi has and has had the success that he's had. Um, and the impact, I think there's always going to be a, um, you know, a period of transition and Dagan having worked under Joe for a couple of years in the early two thousands at NYU as an assistant, uh, certainly helped with his learning curve of, um, knowing the lay of the land and, and NYU had changed tremendously, uh, in the time that he had been away. Uh, but at least he had a baseline knowledge of NYU and, and, uh, you know, and just the way in certain, certain regard that they operate. So uh, that was, that was key. 
Uh, but uh, my second year at John Jay coincided with their first year at NYU. And then I came on board uh, last year you know, for last season. And we had some injuries. We had some bad, uh, some bad, I wouldn't say karma, but just some bad luck uh, in a lot of respects last year and, and some things that were very difficult for us to um, you know, be as successful as we, we thought we would be at the beginning of the year. Um, and it kind of uh, put the, the rebuilding effort on pause for a year. And now you have COVID and who knows what this season's going to look like. Uh, but I know we have the right guys in the program. We, we've had a couple of really big recruiting classes. We're going for a little bit more of targeted quality over quantity approach for the class of 21. Um, but you're around great guys and and no matter how much adversity that we had uh, this past year uh, on the court within the program in, in 1920, um, the players gave us you know everything that they had, and they and they kept playing hard throughout the season. And and that's uh, you know that's a, a good sign towards the future that you have the right guys in the program for starters. Coach, you've been active uh, with certain causes such as the American Cancer Society, uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and Autism Speaks. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, talk about when and why you got involved with those organizations and causes. Great. Yeah, great question. And I'm very, uh, very happy that you asked that question so that I could, I could plug all three orga- uh, organizations. Um, the American Cancer Society, for obvious reasons, you know, just myself having gone through cancer twice. Um, you know, it's it's an organization that means a lot to me that that uh, I, I try to do a couple events uh, with them, you know, volunteering every year. Um, the the uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, my, my father. Uh, has had uh, he's been in remission several times now. He's had leukemia for about 20 years, um, and uh, he's still fighting. And uh, we almost lost him a couple times uh, last year. Um, it'll be almost almost 18 months now. Um, so that's an organization that uh, you know that that does a tremendous amount of work with blood cancers and and such. And and it's been an organization that's been so great to to my dad and my family. Uh, so so to give back as much as possible is is very important to me and. And then Autism Speaks, uh, Brendan Newcomb, who was a player uh, that I had up at, at Maine Maritime, a uh, very, very good player, even better person, even better than that. Uh, his family is, uh, is tremendous, salt of the earth people that, uh, um, you know, I'm still very close with their family and, and, uh, and his grandmother that uh, she's, uh, she, she maybe I, I think on par, she, she has to give probably the best hugs of anybody that I've ever met. Uh, like yeah. this Italian grandmother that comes up to you that just like, like she wants to give you a hug and she wants to feed you. It's, it's <laughs> great. Um, and she's, she's really good at both, uh, you know, cooking and, and giving hugs. Um, but Brendan's uh, younger sister uh, is on the spectrum and they they were a family that uh, lived 30, 40 minutes away from Maine Maritimes campus. And their family was, uh, was so great. Uh, they used to come to every game and they used to travel and, coach, what do you need? How can we, how can we help the program? And, um, and uh, it was, I think it was my second year up there uh, that uh, the school that uh, his sister, that Brendan's sister was going to had uh, a couple events. And it was a, it was like a, like a, like a truck wash or a a honka truck or something like that, like a big, a big fundraiser that they were doing for the school and for, you know, for the special needs. And, um, and so th- that was really the first year that we, we tried to do a lot with Autism Speaks. And then uh, the two years back down here at, at John Jay in New York City and now the last year at NYU, I think for every single game, the three years that I've been here in New York, I've worn 
uh, the autism puzzle piece uh, that uh, you know just raises awareness to you know to autism and and the one in sixty eight that that autism speaks talks about uh, so um, so passionately. Uh, it, it, the all three of the organizations that that mean a lot to me for for various reasons and and the people that are most important in my life and um, and I think any time that you can give back to you know just in terms of charitable work is important number one and philanthropy but but more importantly if you pick organizations that mean uh, you know that much more to you um, you know I think you're more apt to to go the extra mile to help them out as much as you can so. Uh, all three are great organizations. All three of them have a lot of events throughout the year, um, no matter where I've been. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll keep keep plugging their platforms as, as much as I can wherever I am. Couldn't agree more, Coach. You know, shifting gears, what's your craziest recruiting story over the years? <laughs> craziest recruiting story. Um, I mean, I've had – I'm sure we've all had, had certain ones like uh, – um, I've had flat tires on, on a highway. I've had, um, you know, you get stuck in a snow blizzard. Um, I've had, you, you drive four hours to, uh, to see a, a kid play during the season. And, um, you know, there was actually a, a fire alarm that was pulled earlier in the school day. And then there was a bomb threat and they didn't, they didn't cancel the game until like 10 minutes before I got there. So I drove four hours and then got something to eat, and I drove four hours back. Um, but craziest recruiting story, I, I don't have a lot of them, uh, thankfully. Uh, I've, I think I have ones that everybody else has kind of had. But I'll tell you probably the most, the most memorable recruiting trip I've ever had when I was at Merchant Marine. Um, we were recruiting a kid, David Smith, from Tacoma, Washington, who ended up going to Merchant Marine, 1,000-point scorer, was a great player um, at Bellman Prep in Tacoma, Washington. And um, I fly out there for his uh, his senior year, his state tournament. Uh, they lost in the state semifinals that year. And his family is a lot like mine. They're very sarcastic. They're very loud. Uh, they're, they're very warm and, and loving. And just like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll give you the shirt off their back. And, um, and so for three days, I was out there and, uh, you know, had uh, had really good dinners and um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, some, some good, good red wine with the, with the, with the father after, after the, the son, you know, went to bed and everything else like, Hey co coach, let's go grab a drink. Hey, sure. No problem. So he taught me what good, what good Pacific Northwest red wine tasted like. And I'm, uh, I'm very appreciative of that, but, um, but I also think that again, that just the, the relationship building piece of it. Uh, I think I've had, I've been very fortunate in, um, I've gotten to be very close with a number of families over the years, not just players that you recruit or players that you coach, but, but entire families that, that their parents, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles, um, their siblings, um, you, you, you consider them a part of your extended family. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm very fortunate for the Smiths and I still talk to them quite a bit. Um, I'm actually due to give them a phone call here uh, probably soon. Um, but, uh, I, that, that's the, that's the, the most, I know you asked for the craziest stories and I'm giving you something a little bit different, but, um, that's the most rewarding thing for me really is uh, the people that you meet and the relationships that you get to make. And, and, uh, you know, if it's over a glass of, of good red wine, you're, you're all the better for it. Coach, you're the star of this show, so you can make the rules. I'm okay with it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. 
Coach, we've come to the segment I call Start, Bench, Cut. I give you three things. You start one, bench one, and cut one. All right. Let's do it. Now it's back. Now you're the boss again. <laughs> Nike, Adidas, Under Armour. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna start Nike. I'm going to bench Under Armour. I'm going to cut Adidas. Okay, you being a Mets guy. Daryl Strawberry, Dot Gooden, Keith Hernandez. Wow. So I got a great Keith Hernandez story real quick. So I, I, I'm, I'm a huge Met fan, lifelong family, grandparents, you name it. Uh, my dad, a company he used to work with, um, used to give him Mets tickets every so often on the first baseline. And uh, I grew I was born in 83, saw the 86 Mets, the World Series when I was three years old. Didn't really know what baseball was was much back then, but but knew, you know, they were good and I was a fan and everything else. And um, so that the late 80s, uh, Keith Hernandez, first base, the tickets were always on the first base side. So I, I was a, a big Keith Hernandez fan. And uh, the Mets were facing a lefty that night. And uh, Keith, Keith gets the night off. And this right-handed bat named Dave Magadan uh, started in his place. And uh, I was like, I'm like four or five years old and I'm crying. I don't get to see uh, – coming to the Met game, first base side, I don't get to see Keith. Who, who the hell is this Dave Magadan guy? Well, he has like three hits that night, and my dad being the smartass that he is, every single time that Dave Magadan did anything good, he's cheering for him like it's his brother playing first base for the Mets. So if you would <laughs> ask my dad, like still to this day, hey, who's your favorite baseball player of all the time, I guarantee every dollar in my bank account he'd say Dave Magadan just to be a smartass. So um, <laughs> Keith, Hernandez, Keith Hernandez is 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 start – um, you said Doc Gooden, and who was the other one? And Daryl. Daryl, I, I gotta, I gotta go with with uh, bench Doc and and cut Daryl. Not not that I don't like Daryl, but Keith has got to be the start for me. And then and then how can you say no to Doc? He was just so dominant. Nathan's hot dog, slice of pizza, in New York or New York bagel? <laughs> You're killing me, man. You are killing me. Um, I go uh, start slice a pizza, bench a bagel, cut the hot dog. Okay. 50 Cent, Nas, LL Cool J. Good ones. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go start 50, even though uh, I will not start his uh, first pitch at City Field a few years ago, back to the baseball. <laughs> uh, bring it up. Yeah. Start 50, uh, bench Nas and, and cut LL. Okay, white man can't jump, semi-pro, salted cried. Um, start white man can't jump. I'll bench Celtic pride and I'll cut. What was the What was the other one you said? Semi-pro. Yeah, I'll definitely cut semi-pro. Okay, Twitter follows John hmm. Rothstein, Jeff Goodman, Seth Davis. Wow. Um, so Jeff Goodman, I got to know a little bit when I was in New England. He's a Boston guy, and I was in Maine, and um, he's always been very good to me. So I'll I'll start Jeff. Um, I'll bench I'll bench Seth Davis, and I've met him a couple times, and he's he's very good. And I know it's hard to and some people like it, some people don't. Um, his "It's a Wonderful Life" live uh, live tweet on uh, Christmas Eve was the uh, the motivation for me to start the. Uh, now it's going to be the sixth year this this coming October. The uh, live tweet of Hoosiers on October 14th. So he was the motivation for me to do the Hoosiers live tweet. So I'll bench Seth and I'll uh, I'll cut John. Coach, who are three guests I should have on the podcast? 
Um, that's a great question. Uh, so I would say, um, you know, I know you probably don't necessarily want to have, uh, you know, two guys from the same coaching staff, but uh, you know, the first guy I would, I would suggest is, is Dante Milligan, who I work with at NYU and for a number of reasons. I mean, he was a very good division one college player, played at Pitt for two years, went to UMass, was a part of a really, really good UMass team that actually beat Syracuse twice in the carrier dome in the same year. Uh, once in the uh, in the uh, non-conference schedule and the other one in the quarters of the NIT, the postseason NIT to get to the garden. Um, and then he went and played in seven or eight different countries and overseas and played in the G League a couple of years. And um, and now you know he's got his master's from St. Louis, uh, coached under Travis Ford as a GA, who he played with, uh, played under at, um, at uh, UMass. And now he's at NYU. So I just the diversity of his experiences, both as a coach and as a player and, and, and as an athlete, everything. Um, you know, I, I think he would be a really, a really good listen uh, with all of his experiences. Um, who else? I don't know how many women's, I don't know how many women's coaches you've had on the show. Um, but Craig Dagan uh, is the women's coach at Maine Maritime. Uh, everybody that, that knows us, uh, that knows us together. Uh, it was like we were related in a past life. I mean, we have the same mannerisms and, um, you know, very emotional, very uh, sarcastic people. Um, but he's a phenomenal, phenomenal coach. He's been up in Maine Maritime almost 20 years now, I think. And um, he's built a program that consistently wins 18 to 22 games every year. And um, and he does it in, in such a way that, uh, um, you know, I just I I've always found myself watching women's practices at nearly every place I've been. Um, but nobody's, I've never seen anybody run a, a college practice um, the way I've seen Craig run it, um, you know, on the women's side. I mean, he's, he's phenomenal. So, uh, and he'll I guarantee he'll have you in stitches for half the podcast guarantee. Um, so that's, that's the second one. Uh, third one, man, I know I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I mean, there's so many, there's so many good, good coaches out there. I, I would say this, and I would, I would give this advice to anybody that that's doing a podcast. I think so often and COVID and everything the last few months has, has really accelerated this with, with more podcasts and more interviews and, and more people doing it. And I think it's great, but I think like, like politics, like some other parts of, of society, we all keep to our own silos too often. And I think that, the people that if I were to start a podcast tomorrow or if I was giving advice to somebody who was doing a podcast, the number one thing I would I would recommend is to try to have as many people on your your podcast who are not a part of your, your inner circle, who are not friends of yours, who are just people that you just genuinely want to learn from and talk to and just and just give somebody else a platform that that maybe they wouldn't have been able to receive in another way. Um, I think some of those uh, interviews and podcasts are the best ones I've listened to where there's no connection to the interviewer and interviewee. And it's just two guys that are like, like almost just learning about each other and their experiences and talking hoops for an hour and, and life and, and philosophy and whatever. So um, the third one, I guess, to use my answer is just somebody that you've always wanted to talk to that you thought was interesting, that you have no connection to whatsoever. And, and just shoot your shot and try to get them on and, and go from there. I love it. Coach, what advice do you have for coaches trying to get into the business 
or advance uh, their careers. Make sure you love it. Because if you love it, you it's it's essentially not to be morbid, but it's essentially suicide with the with the amount of hours that you're working and um, and just being prepared to to not make a lot of money early on in your career. Um, don't take jobs for money or location or any of those things. Take it for the program that you're going to be involved with, and more importantly than even that, the people that you're going to surround yourself with. You know, I think the number one thing for me and wherever my, excuse me, my, my next head coaching job is, um, I'm not going to necessarily chase like the big name or, Hey, can I win a national title there or anything like I want to be with an athletic director. That's going to be supportive of what we're trying to do. That's going to let, you know, let me coach and let me do my thing, but know that I'm always going to do right by him or her. Um, I want to be around a good, uh, you know, women's program and women's staff that I'm going to be able to learn from the way that they hopefully will be able to learn from me. Um, other coaches in the department, um, the the a- academic administration and, and alumni, uh, and just just the, the the players that you're going to be around and, and recruiting every day and, and coaching every day. Like, it's no fun to recruit a really good player who you know is going to be a jerk for four years and you're not going to enjoy going to practice. So, um, you know, just having that in the back of your your head and. And the very last thing I know I mentioned it once before, but but uh, you 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 win with people, and to steal uh, a line from um, from from the the Seth Davis movie, um, you know, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful life. Um, all you can take with you is that which you've given away, and uh, you know we we all jump from from place to place and and job to job and all that, and um, and what you take with you uh to your next place or or through your lifetime um is uh, you know are the things that you've given away have you given away your knowledge have you given away your your expertise have you given away your time and your attention um or are you like half on your phone texting while you're having a face-to-face conversation with somebody um you know i think time is the most valuable commodity all of us have and when you give somebody your time then you you know you're giving them something that, that you can't get back yourself. And I think that's the greatest gift you can give somebody. So, um, you know, all, all you could take with you is that what you're giving away is, is uh, it's on the header of my Twitter page uh, and it, it'll always be there. And I just love that quote. And I think it's all about relationships and, and this being uh, what should be uh, a people business first and foremost. Coach, if, if listeners want to get in touch with you, social media handles, email, what have you, uh, what's the best way? Yeah, uh, Coach Muchnick on Twitter. Uh, I'm not a great follow on Instagram. If you want to follow me there, be my guest. But uh, Twitter, I, I'm probably active there more than anything else. Uh, Coach Muchnick, M-U-C-H-N-I-C-K, no spaces, dashes, nothing. Um, and, and I'm really good about, um, you know, a couple times earlier during the pandemic, I, I, I just tweeted out like, hey, I if I don't know you and you're following me or you're reading this, like shoot me a DM, give me your number. Let me know when we could talk. Like I'll, I'll have a phone. I'll have a conversation with just about anybody. Um, and I think not enough people in our in our profession and, and just in, in society in general um, are willing to talk to people that they don't know and or that they don't think can can help them. Um, so just uh, you know, reach out if I could ever help anybody uh, that's listening or or follow me. Uh, by all means, reach out. I'll do whatever I can. Coach, you're a guy who I respect the hell out of. You know, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, you know, I wish you guys at NYU nothing but success going forward. 
David, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to have me on and, and stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Box Score podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave reviews, and rate five stars.